Solomon, Chapter 1, Devourer of Continents Solomon inhabits street corners upon occasion, downtown, cold. People march with steaming lips, hunched down-looking mostly. Solomon has taken his place under a lonely street light. Its one eye will be filmy dim for hours to come. The sky is blue but feels gray. Traffic noise muffles along. A symphony of distraction, maybe? There is a hopelessness. Can you hear it? If you sit for a moment in a crowded downtown place and let your heart reach out, close your eyes tight, you can always feel it. Like an aching heartbeat like a yawn and a scream. It will make you cry if you just sit there long enough. So don't. Solomon stands to his full six-foot height. You would first notice his hair, knotty afro sticking up from his head like knotted logs of mahogany, like sea-darkened driftwood. He never combs it enough to make it lose that precious shape. It's like a scalp shout, like black steel roots, thick and alive and black as ink on charcoal at midnight. Your eyes could get tangled and lose themselves. They are all so busy. Will anyone listen today? We'll see. He is a street corner artist, and this is his painful, stubborn canvas deadened human souls. Even as I write that, I know. It sounds so judgmental when he thinks like that. He struggles with that sometimes. His work is hard and costly. How difficult it is indeed to pull flowers out of stones. It can make you jaded. Sometimes it feels like slapping dead people shaking them. It's so hard not to resent them for their simply being so dead. And today, he does a little resent them. It's a certain hardness in his chest, as if this were his business and not his joy. Sometimes he feels like the only man in the department store full of mannequins with the lights off forever. Sometimes, there is a subtle burning of indignation. He didn't know it had crept in again. Then he hears a whisper. What brought you back from the dead? He squints, listening. Did someone slap you alive? He thinks for a moment, remembers his own resurrection when he was face down on cold concrete covered in snow. And he remembers the hands that came for him. It was love, he answers. The story smiles. You remember. I remember, he smiles back. You can't slap dead people alive. Only love them like you are loved. Sometimes he forgets. 
And this resurrection thing is a daily thing. It's gritty work. Death is always wrapping its chains around your neck and wrists, around your guts and lungs, and pulling, pulling you graveward. Only the story is strong enough to break those chains with a whisper so the heart and arms can wriggle free and rise again. Listen closely and you may hear the creak and grind of chains stretching and the snap of their bursting. He feels the words arise in him again. He clears his throat. No one notices. He takes his hands out of his navy blue hoodie pocket. Still no acknowledgement. His voice rings clear and deep, coarse and smooth all at once like grits swimming in butter. Once upon a time, it went down like this. The words are gentle as doves flying out from between his lips and teeth. They flap and patter into the gray air, landing on the heads and shoulders of strangers. There was a boy whose heart was turned to stone by a wicked curse. He lived a painful life. Painful things had happened to him. And one day he clutched his chest as he often did, unable to take a full breath because of what someone had done to him or said to him or not said that they should have said. And once again, he gasped and melted beneath the weight of his pain. But today was different. He suddenly felt a strength somewhere down there, like a rock in your shoe, a ball of muscle clenching, a hard-edged understanding, something maybe forbidden. But he was too far from caring anymore. His heart warned, but he ignored. It was a thorny pill, and he swallowed it. He swallowed it ragged. He choked it down. And deep down, it fizzed. It gave rise to new words, granite utterances. He clenched them out like vomiting a box of rocks. He said, no. And then he said, enough. And then he said, I refuse. And then he said, never again to all that was tender and vulnerable inside of him. And he ripped that pain out of his chest like ripping the pit of a peach out through the sweet flesh and skin. And he threw it on the sidewalk. What he didn't know was that he had ripped out not only the pain, but something more. And in the absence of pain, he felt free. But he had in fact given himself the ungift of a heart of stone. And so he began to climb the skyscrapers, for he wanted to see the world from this new point of view. He felt very good. I mean, he felt not bad anymore. Sometimes in the absence of joy, the absence of pain can become its own pleasure. He felt an absence of pain and put a name tag on it called joy. But the name tag didn't stick because name tags can't stick to nothing, but never mind for now. He continued his ascent until he was high on top of the highest skyscraper. 
looking down on all the heads of the other skyscrapers with traffic like a bioluminescent serpent winding in the streets below. And he screamed with unpain over and over at the top of his lungs. He called this feeling exhilaration, but it was really the absence of boredom. Once again, the sticky tag scrawled with exhilaration fell off and fluttered down. And he met a girl and fell in love, or at least fell in the absence of disdain. He had become very good at sticking name tags on things and then turning away before he could see the disturbing flutter of the tag free-falling. It felt not bad to be in non-disdain with a girl. That might have been the non-saddest he had ever been in his life. And as your narrator, I can barely stand to say it. And though I have not finished, I think we all know what is coming apart. For when our house is broken into pieces and we build again with faulty materials, the merciful storms will reveal our workmanship. Will they not? It was a Tuesday when the storm came. The girl dreamed that all his love letters had been written by a robot secretary. And when she told him the dream, he said all the right things to comfort and reassure that his heart belonged to her, that she was his queen, that he would devour continents for her. But all she could hear was a robot secretary typing messages through his lips. It was all very disturbing. And it flustered her that she couldn't shake this ridiculous feeling. And she tried to ignore it because you can't call off your wedding because of a silly dream. But you also can't marry someone if you feel he doesn't really love you after all. At least this girl couldn't. On Tuesday, she ran. She left him a message and she ran to her sister's house upstate and tried to explain to her sister until words turned into tears, turned into silence, and just being held in understanding arms. She secretly hoped he would come for her, devouring continents to find her, because she did love him, but she knew somehow that he wouldn't. When he got the phone message, all full of confusion and grief and something's missing and silly talk about dreams of robot secretaries writing love letters, he put down his sandwich and he waited for tears to come. His heart was broken. At least that was the name tag he put on this feeling of apathy. And then came disdain, which he labeled as rage. And he punched his sandwich half-heartedly and tried with all his might to summon a single tear, even clenching his guts to make it so. He was granted not a drop. The house he had built was too rigid. And so he wept bitterly, which was the name tag he put on walking to Starbucks and ordering a coffee with cream and no sugar. And he drank it like a punishment.
Solomon opened his eyes, not knowing he had closed them. The story had that effect on you. What he saw astonished him every time. There were seven people standing around him. In glory of glories, a little girl sitting at his feet. Some were gazing at his face, locked in. Others were staring at their feet, ears cocked forward. The little girl had big green eyes. Solomon's heart filled with gratitude. Thank you, he said to the little girl. For what? she asked with a practical tone far beyond her years. Your eyes are precious emeralds, he smiled. You have made me rich today. Then he paused for a long moment. The girl smiled uncertainly. No one had ever said anything like that to her. Her mother, also a practical woman, stirred slightly as if she were coming awake from a dream. Let's go, chica, she said. We gotta move. The girl's eyes became desperate. I think he's all done, baby, Mama said. Grown-ups are good at hiding things, but there was the slightest hint of disappointment in Mama's voice. No, he's not, the girl began to whine, and whining was not normal for this one. Mama opened her mouth to make her instructions 100% clear. Almost, Solomon interjected. Almost done. He winked at the little girl without winking and continued. That was the moment the boy remembered. He remembered. He remembered the day when he ripped that tender, vulnerable, quivering mass out of his chest and chucked it onto the filthy sidewalk. And he knew he must find it. It wouldn't still be on the sidewalk, the girl interrupted. Someone would have thrown that nasty thing in the trash. Her mama shushed her, but you could tell she was excited. Her daughter wasn't usually free like this. Solomon said, You are very clever. It wasn't where he had left it, and it wasn't in the trash. It had climbed up a light post to escape the rats. Everyone kind of wrinkled their noses. The boy climbed up and peeled it down gently. It was covered with dirt and cigarette butts and all kinds of nasty things, and it stank. They wrinkled their noses again. He took it home and washed it gently as best he could. Then he went into a dark room and tried to put it back. That was tough. He didn't have instructions, and his clumsy hands fumbled. He did the best he could, but it was a mess. When he was done, it didn't fit right. It stuck out funny places and was sensitive to the touch. He would always have a half-put-together feeling prone to awkward vulnerability and fits of sharing more than necessary. It's really difficult to hide that kind of broken, half-put-togetherness, believe me. But he was relieved. He was relieved and wrecked all at once because he could feel again. And when he realized that he really loved that girl, the name tag stuck this time.
and he ugly cried for three days. He cried for all his pain. He cried all the tears that he should have cried, if not for that wicked curse that he had put on himself. And it was terribly glorious, terribly glorious. And he thanked God that the curse was lifted and he lived ever after the end. The green-eyed girl waited. Her baffledness slowly morphed into offendedness. What about the princess, she demanded. Did he tell her he was sorry? Every day, Solomon answered. Did they get married, she asked. Did he go find her? She was getting very annoyed. I, I can't do this. Solomon said, his lips faltered. What kind of ending is that? What kind of storyteller are you? She was downright angry. Mama began walking forward to take her away. And this was when the miracle happened. I'm still looking for her, he confessed. I, I devour continents, he wept. I devour continents, he wept. And then they all knew, like a fist to the gut, they all knew. His mouth was the place where fact and fiction meet, where they fall in love, where they have a child. And he cried and cried and ugly cried. This was his gift. And that little girl, she was the first to move toward him, tentative at first, to put a small hand on his leg and then to hold this strange man's dirty leg and cry her mercy. And the others, most of them not believing for a second that they could possibly be doing this, all moved in with hugs and touches and words of awkward comfort for a stranger, and some even wept with him. They sat with him for a long time. And one by one, they walked away stronger than they were before. And their compassion filled him with strength and joy and comfort. And he thanked them and he knew he was loved. And they also knew they were somehow. And that little girl hugged his leg and his tears fell into her hair. And that mama, mama bear as she was, just smiled. Definitely going to wash that hair three times, though, she thought, but kept smiling. Solomon is the one who plants his pain and it sprouts up joy. His mouth is the place where fact and fiction meet, where they fall in love, where they have a child. When everyone was gone, he looked around. He smiled with wounded joy, with a wonderful, costly peace. He blessed that street corner and continued to walk the earth. 